Welcome to an episode of Inner Work Guides Alchemical Gnosis Yoga of the West. I'm your host, John H. Reed III. Let's get to it. You know, I get asked often, how did I get started in alchemy? How did you wind up a hermetic scientist? After all, you really don't see very many melanated per- people uh, doing this uh, type of study. At least that's been my experience. I'd say it was a rather serpentine road that led me to the study of alchemy, the hermetic science specifically. And it went from a stage of innocence through a period of Satanism to finally what I call alchemical gnosis. But let's start at the beginning. When I was a child, I'd say from about the age of seven, up to around nine. For some reason, every night I would go to bed and have the thought, God is one, the universe is one, and I am one. And I don't know where this little mantra came from. My family wasn't Buddhist, they're Christian. But for some reason, I just started saying that. And as I would say that and drift off to sleep, I would see these people clad in white. I never could see their faces, just robes, clad in white, in a circle around me. And as I said, that that happened for a few years, two years or so. And then, uh, during that time, I would also wake up at night or... My family would find me in the basement, and I would say, I'm looking for my laboratory. Now, I was always inclined to chemistry and stuff like that, but, you know, I'd be sleepwalking and looking for some laboratory that just was not there. At some time after that, my father became a Seventh-day Adventist and very fundamentalist view. He he changed from the kind of God is love type of thing to the more bombastic, you know, you're <laughs> the wages of sin or death. <laughs> and that just didn't go over well with me. I mean, this idea that this supreme being would put you in this environment only to want to have you tempted and go through problems so that if you didn't meet its strict criteria, you would burn to to death. And not just burn to death, but, you know, eternally burn to death. That, That just never sat well with me, even as a child. And I developed this anger toward And and I I guess one could even say a hatred towards a God that would do that. I was willing to fight against it. I mean, I didn't see anything wrong with the world. Now, mind you, I was born in the 60s, and yes, there were plenty of problems in the United States. Being a melanated person, 
I wasn't living down south, but believe me, the challenges of living in a 97% Caucasian neighborhood had its uh, specific challenges. And uh, let's just say that it wasn't, uh, you weren't welcomed with open arms and understanding. So still, even with that, you know, I look out at the world and thought, this is a beautiful place. Why does it need to be destroyed? I can tell you one thing, that if you've ever seen a person being burned to death, which I have in, in real life, there was an accident, and the smell and the sounds never leave you. It's, it's horrible. Of course, I didn't know that as a child, but still the unfairness of this proposition about do as I say, and if you make this slight mistake, or somehow or another, if you don't measure up, I'm going to destroy, destroy you and not just kill you, but make you suffer for all eternity. Just, it didn't equate in my mind. And so there was a period of, of anger. But, you know, back to how I got into this, I decided that, you know, why serve in that type of heaven, which just seemed unjust? I mean, as a kid, you know, before I went into puberty, I was fine. And then all of a sudden, because I get an erection, uh, I'm sinning. It just, I didn't ask for that. I was happy to be a kid. And then all of a sudden now I have this other super set of problems. So my thinking was, hey, listen, why this is unjust. This isn't fair. Uh, I don't see why anybody else can't see this, but I'm not going to play along with that game. So I jumped straight into Satanism. I figured, you know, maybe he had the right idea about rebelling. And so I became proficient in the use of, or let's call it uh, the left-hand path, if, if you will. Um, or magic used for selfish and greedy ends. I can say I got into magic for money, power, and women. And I became quite proficient at using that to get those things. Fast forward a few years, um, I graduate from high school. Yes, all my high school friends know John's into the left-hand path and doing weird stuff, and um, that was just kind of my persona. So I joined the Air Force, and I get to Texas, and when I muster out of the Air Force, you know, I'm searching for my way. And a friend of mine had mentioned a psychic, a woman who was a psychic. I actually went to see her son first, and he was the one, John Ketchings, told me to uh, go see his mother. Because at that time, I had a, um, an une a bent towards or a perspective of life that uh, wasn't conducive to uh, being a good citizen. I'll put it like that. And so anyway, I go see Miss Ketchings, who's uh, John's mother, and she gives me a reading and tells me all kinds of interesting things about myself, even some past life things. And she invites me to come to a psychic fair. She says, I'll meet someone there that will give me more information. So uh, I'm skeptical, but, you know, I'm still intrigued by her. So I go to this psychic fair. I'm milling about, and there's this um, gentleman who's uh, 
melanated also, that I have a reading because Birdie is just, I mean, Miss Catching is just all booked up and it's hard to get to see her. And this man tells me certain things about myself and he also says, listen, you know, you're going to become a teacher and you're going to write. And many people around the world are going to read your words and learn from you. And I'm thinking, man, this guy is full of BS. Nobody wants to hear anything that I have to say. And I don't know anything to teach anyone. I mean, I just high school graduate. That was it. So I continue living my life of just taking, basically. I'm gainfully employed, but I'm using magic to get ahead. And I finally come to a point where I'm like, you know, I want to get even deeper into this magic. So there's um, some spiritual story. I don't know how I found that particular place. I don't remember who told me to go to that place. But I remember I walk in and there's a lady behind the counter. And of course, you know, I mean, they sell candles and, you know, different uh, spiritual things. It's a spiritual psychic store. And I asked the woman, I said, listen, I want somebody to teach me more about Satanism. And the woman looks at me and I can see her eyebrow go up. I mean, a female Mr. Spock eyebrow raise. And she looks at me for a second and says, I don't know if I can help you with that, but I do know a man that can help you. And she gives me this fellow's number and she says he's a magician. So I contact him. And this is the first time that I hear about the hermetic science from him. He tells me about a man named Franz Barden. I buy some of his books, and lo and behold, I didn't know that you could actually use magic for something good. I thought that it was always just this, um, this thing about taking, not doing something positive. After all, I'd been brought up with a certain worldview. Now, I really believe that there was a, you know, God and devil. It's just that things were kind of transposed in my mind. The way God had been presented to me was this really onious tyrant, not a loving being that was understanding. But I work with this hermetic scientist, and he eventually gets me to give up Satanism. And I remember when he took my implements, I tried to get them back, and he, he wouldn't give it back. And uh, Man, I felt disenfranchised, disenchanted, like I'd lost all my power. And things, problems just started happening. I remember one day I was driving to go to a job interview, I was living in Fort Worth at the time. The interview was in Dallas. And uh, as I go there, I actually, I mean, I, I ran out of gas. And so I have to go and get some gas. I don't have a gas can. And the guy at the gas station says, well, you know, you leave your license and, you know, pay for the gas. And I did. And I go back. And when I get back to my car, I see my hood is up. And lo and behold, someone had stolen my battery, but not just stolen my battery, cut the cables. So, you know, they, they didn't just 
use a, 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 a wrench to loosen the cables. They cut the cables so they could steal the batteries and punctured my tire. I am beside myself. And um, so I walk back to the gas station with the guy's gas can, and he's like, well, where's your car? And I tell him what happened. And he said the strangest thing to me. He said, I don't know what you've been doing with your life, but you sure as hell are paying for it now. Well, I mean, it, it's been six months since I'd done magic, maybe a, close to a, closer to a year, maybe nine months. And I remember walking back, and I am just frustrated. I'm like, look, I gave up all this stuff. There's supposed to be this beneficent being where are you? Where's my comforter? I'm not doing the bad stuff or what is bad or considered bad. I need help. And at that very moment, a car pulls over. And this man gets out of the car. And he has a countenance that immediately puts me at ease. I'd never seen a person radiating such peace before in my life. He walks up to me and he asks, what's wrong? And I tell him, and he says, okay, no problem. Get in the car. I get in the car with him. We go to the, back to the gas station. He buys a battery and cables, electric tape, and buys a tire, and goes back with me to my car, fixes the battery, and puts a new tire on. He says, oh, by the way, you're going to need to um, get that balanced. And don't worry, you're going to get the job. Now, I realized later that when I was eating, that I had not told the fellow about the job, that I was there for an uh, interview. As a matter of fact, I, I didn't have any more money after I had spent that $20 for the gas because I was running on fumes at that time. And he actually gave me some money and said, go get something to eat. And um, by the way, yeah, you're going to get the job. And I was amazed at this. And sure enough, I, I get the job. Sometime later, the hermetic scientist I met tells me about alchemy. And he gives me my first book on alchemy. And I remember when he handed it to me, he said, listen, if you ever find the elixir, you have to promise me that you will share it with doctors freely. That's one, the only oath, actually, that I've ever made in alchemy. And I remember saying in an offhanded way, yeah, yeah, whatever, man, just give me the book. And he held on to it and said, no, look at me. And I looked him in the eye and he said, promise me. And I said, okay, fine. I promise if I ever find the elixir, and I didn't know what that was really, just I'll share it freely. After that, he gave me the book, and I never saw the man again. Could not find him, could not contact him. But the seed had been planted. And I read this book, and I remember I tried one of the experiments in it. It had to do with light converting silver nitrate or something like that to gold. And I built this weird apparatus with a Fresnel lens to 
try and do that. And all my Texas neighbors are sitting there thinking, you know, that boy from New York is crazy. He's sitting out there in the middle of the Texas sun in summer with this weird box <laughs> focusing the sun's rays. Sometime after that, obviously the experiment did not work. But there was some really good information in that book that I got for later years that I still use in my work, especially how to make vegetable glass and how to make tinctures from crystals. If you understand the book, it, it actually gives good instruction. Sometime after that, because the book had been published by Sam Weiser, I actually reached out to Sam Weiser. I called the company. This was pre-internet days, folks. This is the mid-80s. And there was a guy, I believe his name was Glenn Houghton. He worked in their antiquarian department. And somehow or another, I got him on the phone. I, I don't know how, because I did not ask for the antiquarian department. But I was looking for more books on alchemy, and I figured, well, they published this one. They must have others or recommendations. I didn't know anything about where to look, what to do. And he said, well, we do have um, a book, but it's out of print, the Alchemist Handbook by Frater Albertus. It's going to come back in print sometime, but I don't know when. But we do have a limited number of another of his books called The Alchemist of the Rocky Mountains. And I bought that book. And it wasn't too long after that that I just became absolutely enamored with alchemy. About a year after that, I moved back to Fort Worth. Uh, I had moved to, to um, Dallas in the interim. And um, I moved back to Fort Worth. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to apply to go to Paracelsus College. And this was in 84. So Frater Albertus had died. And I missed that opportunity. And I remember thinking, man, this is crazy. I, I wanted to learn from this man so badly. I mean, I was willing to go there and be the janitor. If they would give me a cot and food I would clean as long as this guy taught me. Just teach me, please. I don't know why, but this flame had been ignited in me. And so I contact the college. I'm interested in getting any of his writings that I can. And the lady who was there, a lady by the name of Olive Vandermuren, I believe, said, well, you know, we don't have anything, and the college's the doors are going to be closed, and a couple of months, the money, whatever was there in the fund, was about out, and that's that. She ha said, I have one copy of everything. Alchemical lab bulletins, parachemies, essentia, men in the cycle of the universe, his astrocyclic pulsation charts, his uh, golden manuscripts. How much is everything? And she said, I can hold it for two weeks, and it's going to be about $500, shipping included. Now, at the time, I was working at a place, and I was making $5.25 an hour. So that, that, that $500 was about, uh, about two-thirds of the money that I took home. 
uh, a month. And I had to make a decision. There was this need to get this. I don't know where that need came from, but I was desperate to get his things. So what can I give up? Well, I was smoking ganja pretty heavily back then. Who knew me back then would have told you John wouldn't give up ganja for anything, but I gave up a month of ganja. Still, it wasn't enough. I mean, it's not the stuff that you have available today. That was just crappy weed, but then I had to give up cut-out cable. There still wasn't enough. Look, the only things that I couldn't give up was rent, I needed a place to live, and gas money. So after giving up weed and cable, there really was only one other thing left, and that was the money for food for two weeks. And so I look in my cupboard, and there's just flour, salt, pepper, and coffee. No sugar, no yeast, nothing else. Just that. And I look at the money that I have for my food, and don't you know it comes, when I put it all together, it comes to exactly what I need to get those books. So I have to make a decision. Do you want these books? How badly do you want them? you want them bad enough not to eat for two weeks? Well, I had hardtack for two weeks. Yeah, that's some nasty tasting stuff. And I used to be a professional baker, so it was really strange to me that I had flour, salt, and pepper, but no yeast in the house. That was just strange. And I learned to enjoy black coffee. I loved black coffee at the end of those two weeks. I'm back to using cream now, but at that time, it, I got used to it. And so I get those books and they changed my life. I began reading everything that he put out. And it soon became apparent to me that there's some instruction here. One of the things that Frater would tell people is that the year before you, you're to study, not to do any work, to immerse yourself in nature. By this time, it's the late 80s, and that oil crisis had come to Texas, and I didn't have any money. I was working as a photographer at the time. I had to come back home to New York, live in my dad's house, the place that I used to look for my laboratory as a young man. So I get back to New York. I start doing this thing that I call the vigil of nature, following Albert's rules, the scant rules that he had left, which was basically to study alchemy, and the interesting thing was is that the alchemical lab bulletins, there are 53 of them. So if I studied one each week, by the time I got to the 53rd one, I would be able to start doing the work. Now, this was a test or a trial in and of itself, because there were a lot of simple experiments that one could do with mason jars or you know, to make oil of iron in a very simple way, you can just get iron oxide, pour acetone over it. It has a reaction or a catalytic reaction. A hydrocarbon is formed and boom, you've got what they call the oil of iron. Or making simple plant extracts with mason jars. That was a trial not to do that. It was also a trial to go out into nature every day to just stand and expose myself to the elements. Now, of course, I'm wearing a coat, but, you know, standing outside 
during the rain and snow in the winter is not fun. And you're sitting there asking yourself, why am I doing this? This crazy old man is dead, and you're sitting here doing something that, I mean, this is ridiculous. And I lived in a pretty nice spot. I mean, there was a lake literally right down the street, a nice little lake. I remember as a kid, we used to go there and play Knights of the Round Table. And there was this rock formation that we called the Spine of the Dragon. It actually looked like a spine jutting up out of the earth. And I spent an entire year going to that spot, looking over that lake, experiencing nature and my emotions, as Frater Albertus had instructed. At the end of that year, I began making my first alchemical products, simple extracts. And, you know, Frater always said, he always wrote, alchemy raises your vibrations. And I never stopped to think, what does that mean? So when I started taking these products, I'm not sure what I expected to happen, but what happened is not what I expected. And I'd used a lot of drugs in my life, um, psychedelics. And, you know, I knew, uh, because I had been trained as a medical lab tech in the Air Force, that rosemary, chamomile, caraway, they're, they're not psychoactive in normal doses, okay? And the stuff that I made wasn't concentrated. There wasn't anything, you know, super duper about it. But when I started taking it, I started having these initiatory dreams. And they started telling me, how to do work in the laboratory. And the crazy thing is, is when I put to practice what I had seen and was told in the dreams, it worked. It worked. And I had wondered about my sanity because I'd never heard of anything like this. You know, I knew LSD would make you trip, but not rosemary or chamomile or horsetail. Come on. I had a lot of different initiatory dreams, and I guess I'll go into that in another recording. But what happened was, is that the crux of all of that was the writing of my book uh, that's on the Alchemy website, my practical course in alchemy. A rather unique way of doing the alchemical plant work that um, people weren't doing or able to do in that way. It exactly mirrored what the um, older adepts had written about in the Major Arcana. And they always said the small work is an exact mirror, but I'd never seen anyone exactly put it forward the way I did, with the color changes and the matter growing and, and getting darker and the whole nine yards. And it wasn't until a few years after all of that when I went to a Philosophers of Nature conference where a fellow by the name of Eves was speaking about alchemical initiation <clears throat> and how it mirrored certain aspects of the tree of life and how you would have certain dreams for a different sephiroth. And I swear, all the dreams that that man detailed were the dreams that I had. And I realized that this was something rather unique, that I had been initiated into this. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I make my basic seven, and it's not just that simple. It's not just making those herbal products. If you'll remember, I said I followed Frater's directions, and that meant going through a period of passivity. As Frater would say, a rise is always preceded by a fall, or a period of inactivity 
precedes that of perceived growth. Sort of like the winter. Seems like nothing's happening, but the ground is being nurtured, stuff is being broken down, and when the spring happens, everything rises up. And so this series of recordings are going to be about my road to alchemical gnosis, the process that I used that brought me full circle around to a new understanding and a practice of esoteric Christianity. As I tell my students, what if that mandate to go and tell the world about the light of Christ had nothing to do with proselytizing to the world, but rather it was about bringing that light inward to finding a way of radical self-acceptance, of radical self compassion, and yet holding oneself sternly accountable for their actions. What would happen when you bring that light inward and that internal equanimity is established? What do you think would radiate out from you? And that's what this series of talks are going to be about. What I went through, how I did it, and hopefully how I might be able to help you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inner Work Guides, Alchemical Gnosis, Yoga of the West. Don't forget to subscribe. Contact me by writing to theinnerworkguide at gmail.com. Go to my website, innerwork.guide. Create an account to get on the mailing list. Read the blog and listen to the podcast. Click on the donate button to support my work. <music>